Have you ever been really excited about a movie that's coming out soon? Any like Star Wars geeks who like dress up in Jedi robes and wait in lines for the midnight first showing? I'm seeing fingers pointed, right? Wait, volunteer yourself, right? Not others, right? All right, so this movie's coming out, right? You, you've been reading about it for months, right? You've kept up with all the news, and it's almost here, right? Or maybe uh, maybe there's an out-of-town guest, somebody, a friend of yours you haven't seen in a long time is coming to visit, and you've, they've booked their plane tickets, and you've arranged all the, you know, picking them up from the airport and where they're staying and how long they're going to be here, and you've got the plan for what we're going to be doing while they're here, right? You get really excited, right, and the sense of anticipation, sort of fills you, right, for, for this friend that's coming from out of town and all the, the things that you're going to get to do. Or maybe it's an anticipated day, like a birthday, right? Kids, right, you love counting down to your birthdays. I know mine do, right? They're like, all right, my birthday's only seven and a half months away, so I need to start planning right now what's going to be on my cake and got this wish list going, like, all right, calm down. Calm down, right? But we get excited about those special days and these, these moments and these occasions that are, uh, that are on the way and time is marching forward and we expect them to arrive and, and we begin to uh, connect our, our hearts and our dreams and our hopes to that day or that movie or that visit from a friend or, or whatever it may be. I think that sense of anticipation, that sense of longing uh, for, for something to be fulfilled, uh, is kind of how the people in Jerusalem were feeling uh, during our, what happens in our text today. So if you will turn in the Gospel of John to the 12th chapter, John chapter 12, we will be today uh, looking at verses 9 through 19. And as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem for what we have traditionally called Palm Sunday, where he's entering Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week, right? The week that will lead him to the cross. We begin to see a sense of anticipation on the part of the Jewish people. These Jews from all over Palestine who have now collected, gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast that happens once a year, and they've come to make their sacrifices and to be a part of this festival. Uh, and, and as they arrive in Jerusalem, there's news. There's a buzz around the people that Jesus is in town. Right? Jesus is coming to town. And there's this sense of anticipation, not just because of curiosity about Jesus specifically, but the question and the possibility that Jesus himself will be the fulfillment of hundreds of years worth of prophecy and promise that has been handed down to the people from the prophets uh, in the Old Testament. And so people are learning that Jesus is in town and they're very interested to see whether he might be this long-awaited Messiah. Look with us at verse 9 as we can just kind of set the scene for what's happening here. Verse 9 says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Okay, so you remember we looked back in John chapter 11 
at this incredible miraculous sign that Jesus performed of raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. He had been dead for four days, well and truly dead. He's not just merely dead, he's truly, most sincerely dead, right? <laughs> Elizabeth liked the Wizard of Oz reference. All right, um, he is truly dead, right? And Jesus has called him out of his grave. Lazarus, come forth, and up he came. Well, news like that, tends to spread, right? And that's in the little village of Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. So all these people have heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and not just the normal inhabitants of Jerusalem, but also these thousands of Jews coming from all over the region into Jerusalem are beginning to hear not just, hey, there's this Jesus fellow, but Jesus raised the guy from the dead. And so people want to see Lazarus too. Like, is this real? Did this man really get raised from the dead? And so people are chatting and asking questions and looking for him. And now we find in verse 10 that the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus now expands to include Lazarus as well. As if it weren't enough for this guy to die once, now they want to kill him again. Look at verse 10. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now remember, they can't have that. They can't have all of these Jews believing in Jesus. Because if they start to think that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah, the one that was promised to redeem the world, restore the nation of Israel, and reign on the throne of David forever, fulfill all these promises, that's going to cause an uproar, right? And the people are probably expecting kind of a military conquering hero, right? Kick out the Romans, give us the land back, take our rightful place, right, as rulers in Jerusalem once again. And so the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, we, t- we looked at them a couple weeks ago, kind of the supreme court uh, of the Jewish people, they've decided Jesus has got to die. And now they're going, maybe we should kill Lazarus too. Because if he's dead, then nobody can prove that he was raised from the dead, right? And so maybe people will stop believing in Jesus on his account because you're like, nope, he's dead, right? Still dead. Um, so poor Lazarus, now he's got the religious leaders after him as well. So in other words, when they say many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus, precisely what the Sanhedrin feared about this public frenzy over Jesus is taking place, right? They think, Everyone's going to go believe in Jesus, and that's exactly what's happening. There is excitement and anticipation and a buzz about Jerusalem that Jesus may be the Messiah, and people are going away and believing in Jesus. So we find on Sunday morning, Jesus makes his entry, his dramatic entrance into the city of Jerusalem, leading up to his crucifixion. And so John sets the scene for us here beginning in verse 12. And he receives a joyful welcome when he enters the city. Look at this in verse 12. The next day, that is Sunday morning because it had been Saturday night that he was with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at a party. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, it's all these Jews that are gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
Now, a few questions, I think, arise just in the reading of that verse. One of those questions is, why palm branches? All right, we call it Palm Sunday. We see them laying down palm branches on the ground. What's the big deal about palm branches? And it really harkens back to a piece of Jewish history from between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, where a guy named Judas Maccabeus led this revolution uh, to kick out the Seleucids from the temple who had kind of taken over Jerusalem. They kicked them out and reclaimed the temple and rededicated the temple in 164 BC. In fact, that is the event that is remembered uh, and celebrated in Hanukkah. Jesus himself uh, interacted with the traditions of Hanukkah back in John chapter 10. So Judas Maccabeus leads this revolt. In 164, uh, the, uh, the temple is rededicated and the people found these branches from palm trees to, to, to celebrate the victory of Judas over uh, the Seleucids. And so the palm branch, because of that, became kind of a symbol of national identity. And in fact, a palm branch was even minted on Jewish coins at this time. Uh, it, was, it was a symbol of rededication and renewal and the power of God over their enemies and just national identity, right? So the palm branch is like this represents who we are as the Jews, as the people of God who he is saving and redeeming and restoring to their land. So when Jesus rides into town and they find palm branches to lay on the ground, it's hearkening back to the victory, the military and political victory of Judas Maccabeus over the bad guys, over the Seleucids that had been in charge of the temple up to that time, right? So there is a military political overtone, a national identity going on here as Jesus enters the town and in the people's minds, they're thinking this could be the military hero that's going to save the day, right? He's going to kick out the Romans and give us back the land. So that is a little bit of an explanation of why they are putting palm branches down. It actually says some of them put down coats. Some of them put down their own coats for him to walk on, and others found palm branches to lay on the ground as a way to honor this conquering king who is entering Jerusalem. The next question that comes to mind is why Hosanna? So they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna, this is, we're going to track back three languages. You ready? Hosanna is just a transliteration of a Greek word, Hosanna, which is itself just a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase, Hosanna, which means save now or save please it's a cry for salvation so in that song we sang at the beginning of the service where we sing hosanna hosanna you are the god who saves us we're really celebrating uh, in one sense kind of pleading with god for salvation but on the other hand also rejoicing and celebrating the salvation that he has given us so hosanna can have either sense like i'm drowning in a pool and i shout out save me or i see the lifeguard coming and i'm celebrating Hurrah, you know, salvation has come. Hosanna, right? It can mean kind of either one of those things. So when they say Hosanna, they are again seeing in Jesus the salvation of God come to the Jewish people. 
And when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this is an echo from Psalm 118, verse 26. Actually, verse 25 and 26, which has the word Hosanna and this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're tying to Jesus a, the, the Davidic line, if you will, the, the throne of David who God promised there would be a king that would reign on David's throne forever. They, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are tying Jesus to this promise to David that there would be a king that would come in his name, anointed by God to reign on the throne of David. In other words, the people are welcoming Jesus as the promised king who would reign on the throne of David, fulfilling Israel's hope for a Messiah. And as far as that goes, that's right. And we go, yeah, they get it. Right? They're celebrating Jesus. They're recognizing that he is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that a king would reign on his throne. They're recognizing that Jesus is going to bring the salvation of God to his people. But it might have been a little short-sighted. Right? Might have been a little bit too narrow-minded. And again, they're thinking of their own political situation and the fact that the Romans are currently in charge of the whole land of Palestine and Jerusalem in particular, and that they've got this kind of fragile arrangement uh, between Jews and Romans where they'll kind of, the, the Romans would let them kind of do what they wanted to do as long as they could kind of keep it under control. As long as there wasn't an uprising or a revolt, if things didn't get too noisy, they were kind of happy to keep them in their place, if you will, which is why Jesus is such a threat to the religious leaders, because they like things the way they are, because right now we have authority and we have power and the people do what we say, right? But if people go after Jesus and the Romans come and squash this revolution, we're going to lose everything that we've got. So it seems that the people in Jerusalem, as they welcome Jesus, they welcome him gladly with rejoicing, with celebration, but they're probably not seeing the salvation of God in the same way that he intends. They're probably not seeing the, the messianic role of Jesus in the same way that he plans to carry it out. Because they're thinking military victory, kicking out the Romans, we get our land back. That's not really what Jesus has in mind. Jesus doesn't come with a sword. Jesus doesn't come to fight. He comes with peace and in humility and with service. However, we find that Jesus doesn't correct them. In fact, Jesus welcomes their praise. Look at verse 13 and verse 14. This is after the people have cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, in fact, that phrase, Jesus found a young donkey, is explained in some detail back in Matthew chapter 21. I will read to you the first few verses of Matthew 21. This is Matthew's account of the same event, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And it says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, 
Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and this is the very verse that John quoted, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. All right, so Jesus has sent his disciples into this nearby town and said, you're going to find a donkey, untie it, bring it to me. If somebody says, hey, where are you going with my donkey? Say to them, I love this, the Lord needs it. And he'll let it go. Oh, okay. In that case, why didn't you just say so, right? Uh, nobody's ever asked to borrow my car and said, oh, it's okay, the Lord needs it, right? Um, I might go, uh, he might talk to me about that first, right? But it worked out for Jesus. Um, so they found this donkey and they brought him the donkey and Jesus is going to ride on the donkey. And that is in fulfillment of this prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the fact that Jesus is riding on this donkey, and a small donkey, a young donkey at that, is an indication of his humility, right? He didn't ride in on a steed. He didn't ride in on this big, tall war horse, right? Scepter in hand. He rode in on a donkey. And the, the prophet Zechariah tells us humble and having salvation he comes on the colt of a donkey so Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey in humility again not in conquest not in a military in military might but he welcomes their praise he doesn't stiff arm them he doesn't go oh hold on hold on hold on I think you guys got this all wrong I, th I think you're misunderstanding what I'm really here to do. They shout Hosanna. They shout blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They shout King of Israel. And he welcomes it. He doesn't stop it. They cite these Old Testament promises. They hail him as their king and call for salvation. They lay down palm branches in the tradition of welcoming a king. And Jesus welcomes the praise. Because even though they're maybe a little bit misunderstanding of the nature of the salvation Jesus will bring and the timing of the, 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 the conquering, if you will, the kingdom victory that he will bring. They're right to praise him. They're right to recognize him as the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises and of these, these prophecies that God has been giving for hundreds of years. And so Jesus welcomes their praise. And then in the pattern of the gospel of john verse 16 tells us not surprisingly his disciples did not understand these things at first that happens all over the place in john's gospel right jesus says something and the people go that doesn't make sense or they totally misunderstand what he's saying so jesus says for example i am the bread of life whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life and the people go eh, i don't think that's for me right? And they turn away. I don't think I can become a cannibal for your sake. That's not what Jesus meant, 
but that's how they took it. They didn't get it, right? Where Jesus says, I am uh, the good shepherd, and people go like, wait, why? that doesn't make sense. Like, why, 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 you're not a shepherd, you're a carpenter, and like, they just don't get it. They don't connect all these things that Jesus is saying about his identity uh, with, with the spiritual reality that undergirds those things. So, in keeping with that, the disciples don't get it. But, thankfully, there's hope. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When Jesus had been glorified, that is, he had been crucified and raised. That's what the glorification of Jesus is referring to there. After all the events of the next week or so unfold, then they go, oh, when Jesus rode into town on that donkey... And the people laid palm branches down. They were welcoming him as the, as the king of Israel, but not this military conquering hero that as the one who would bring redemption and atonement for our sins. The one who would, as John the Baptist said, take away the sins of the world by becoming the sacrificial lamb. They start to understand. So verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and had raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. So there were people who were actually there in Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus. They saw it themselves. And they're continuing to tell people, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. All right? Seems to them like everyone in the world is going after Jesus and believing in him. So on the one hand, we're encouraged that people are finally getting it, that people are finally recognizing Jesus as their Messiah and as their king and as their hero. But they didn't quite get it right, did they? They had it a little bit upside down. They had these these temporal... Um, political, social ideas in mind about what the Messiah would do. When the Messiah comes, he's going to give us back our land. They tried to essentially fit Jesus into their mold, right? Into their idea of what a Messiah should be. We have in our minds what a Messiah is going to do. And if Jesus seems to be that guy, then we are more than happy to put our hopes and dreams upon Jesus and let him carry that out for us. We know how the story goes. By the end of the week, they're not going to be quite so sure, right? They're not going to be quite as um, cheerful and joyful in celebrating Jesus as he gets handed over to the Romans and nailed to a cross. But I want to spend a few minutes this morning on the tail end of this passage thinking about how we might be guilty of the same thing. How do we maybe kind of try to squeeze Jesus into our molds or try to fit him into our idea of what a savior should be, right? What, what do we think the savior of the world should be about? And then maybe we take some of those things and we project them onto Jesus and we assume this is what Jesus will do. This is what Jesus looks like. Here's a couple of possibilities. One of the common, I think, sort of misshapen identities that we give is Jesus, the American hero. 
Jesus, the American hero. We see Jesus perhaps as the champion of our, of our ideals, the bedrock of our morals, the hope for national success. He's the linchpin in our politics, the trump card in our voting policies. Trump card meant something different before President Trump. I'm sorry for the, the, there's no pun intended there. But so we think Jesus is the one who sort of carries our our morality and our hopes for the nation. So if someone, for example, running for office name drops Jesus enough times, we're inclined to trust him, right? Oh, look, he says he believes in Jesus. So maybe we should vote for him. Now, this is probably a bit more subtle these days because almost nobody would really politically survive actually naming Jesus. Um, so we listen for phrases like traditional American values or Judeo-Christian foundations and things like that, right? And we go, ooh, this is the guy for all of our hopes to ride on. In this version of Jesus as Savior, as Jesus the American hero, the bad guys are the liberals, right? Or the Democrats or however you want to label them. And we assume that Jesus' primary goal in our day is to defeat them at the ballot box and in the Supreme Court, right? And so when I shout Hosanna in this sense, if this is my vision of Jesus, then Hosanna to me, I'm probably thinking about the declining morality in an increasingly secular nation, the deteriorating schools and communities in our cities, the, depression, the depressing headlines paraded across my TV screen every time I turn on the news. And I'm thinking, maybe if I surround myself with enough Jesus-themed music and movies and books and talk shows and education options and friends, I can kind of wait out the storm and God will return the U.S. of A. back to its good old days of traditional values, right? Sometimes we have this idea that Jesus is the champion of our idea of what America should be. And so he becomes kind of a national hero to us. But is that really what Jesus is about? Is Jesus really an American at all? No, of course not. Is the United States of America the sheep that are not of this flock? that Jesus spoke of in John 10, where he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also. Is he talking about the United States of America? No, but we have this way of talking about America like that's the case, like we're kind of God's special people. Even the, the Puritans who first kind of settled here like had this way of talking about America like in the language of the city on a hill, right? And so that's kind of, Past, been passed down to us and we've kind of inherited this idea that the United States of America is like God's special chosen people or nation. Now I'm not suggesting in this that that our faith in Jesus has no bearing on how we live as citizens of an earthly nation. It certainly does, right? But if we envision Jesus decked out in stars and stripes and sporting a you know hunter's camo ball cap, uh, we probably squeezed him into a role that he never intended to fulfill. That's not what Jesus came to do. The kingdom of Jesus is much bigger than the United States or any earthly nation for that matter. And the conditions of citizenship in his kingdom are far deeper than any constitution or government could ever contain. So Jesus is not an American hero, right? And we often will hear people, we'll read the, the verse in Second Chronicles that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, 
and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear from heaven and I will heal their land, right? And we go, oh, look, their land, that's the United States of America. So the people of America need to humble themselves and pray, and then God will redeem the land. Well, that's not what that verse is about at all. That verse is to national Israel, who was his covenant people. Who is God's covenant people now? It's those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, right? True Israel, spiritual Israel, are those who have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so when he calls on his people, that's who he's talking to. He's not talking to any nation or any political boundary. He's saying the people who are related to me by faith in Jesus Christ, that's who he calls to humble themselves, if you will, and pray. So I think this idea of Jesus as sort of the, the ideal American and kind of like the champion of our American morals and values is not what he intended to do. It's not the role he intended to fulfill when he came as Messiah. Another one that uh, is common, I think, in our day and time is Jesus the personal genie. Jesus the personal genie. And we might even have like good holy memories of singing like Jesus loves me as children, right? I still sing that to my kids. And we think, you know, the only real way to show someone love is to give them what they want, right? That's how we love somebody. Therefore, Jesus' ultimate goal in life must be to make me happy, right? To fulfill my dreams, to give me what I think I need. If that's my vision of Jesus, then when I shout, Hosanna, salvation, I'm probably thinking of a personal wish list or a list of you know, aspirations that I hope to fulfill. And if my faith in Jesus is strong enough, I just might get everything I'm hoping for. Question, is Jesus interested in my happiness? Yeah, maybe. I'm not going to dismiss that and act like Jesus doesn't care, but as long as the happiness I'm thinking about is not a fleeting emotion based on my circumstances and things going the way that I want them to go, but a deep-seated joy in my identity as a child of God and a gladness of heart that comes from being filled with his spirit. If that's what we're talking about, then yes, Jesus is interested in our gladness in him, our satisfaction in him, our joy in him. But if we're going to pit values against one another, and goals in our lives, perhaps Jesus is more interested in conforming me to himself than in comforting me with my own goals and desires. All right, Romans 8, 29 tells us that God has predestined us and purposed us to be conformed to the image of his son, which tells me that maybe God's ultimate goal for me is Christ-likeness. It's that I would grow to be more like him and represent him more fully in the world where I live. So maybe Jesus is more interested in who I'm becoming than in how much he can give me or in how many of my dreams I can check off and say, God fulfilled that one, God fulfilled that one, and if I believe hard enough, maybe he'll fulfill this one too. So there are other ways I'm sure that each of us probably try to cram Jesus into a role that we want him to play. Right? We want Jesus to be our personal uh, champion for whatever our cause is or whatever our challenge is or maybe goals at work or whatever. And we kind of think, well, Jesus will do this for me, right? And so we kind of shape him in, into our own image in a sense. But that all raises the question, why did Jesus really come? 
Like if the people of, of Jerusalem in this day missed the real purpose, even recognizing Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the king that God promised, but they were wrong about how he was going to fulfill that role. And thinking about our own, uh, how we can be prone to misunderstand the role that Jesus came to play, right? And how Jesus fulfills uh, the role of Savior, of Messiah for us. We got to ask ourselves, why did Jesus really come? What's the purpose of his uh, coming into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday? What's the purpose of him coming into the world at all? Remember, like John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm going to let Jesus answer that question in his own words. Two different places uh, to get kind of a slightly different aspect of his purpose for coming. One is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says this, even the son of man that's speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? He didn't come for Palm Sunday. He came for Good Friday. He came to give his life as a ransom, to buy back ruined, broken, rebellious, spiritually dead sinners who were enslaved to Satan and sin and death. He came to give his own life in our place, to redeem us from the curse of the law and to give us a new life. He came not to be served, right? He didn't come to be just recognized as this great king and yes, toss to me your branches and your coats. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Luke 19.10, Jesus says this to Zacchaeus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that he's paid the ransom and purchased back his people, as it were, from sin and death, he is on a search and rescue mission. That's what he came for. He came to redeem sinners and then to seek and to save these lost, scattered sheep, if you will, going back to his, his own metaphor in John chapter 10. The sheep that are not of this Jewish fold that he needs to gather, right? Jesus is on a rescue mission, a search and rescue mission to find those sheep and to call them to himself. And he's going to use the church to do that. That's his strategy. You might go, Jesus, could you come up with a better idea? He says, no, I'm okay with this one. Right? Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. This is God's idea. God's plan is, I have ruined rebellious sinners that I need to save, and I'm going to do it through the ones I've already rescued. The ones I rescue and pull out from the fire, so to speak, are the ones I then send out to find the others. So we are those who have been redeemed from death and hell and separation from God forever through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, through simple trust in what he accomplished for us. And now he's sending us out. He sends us out into the world to find, if you will, the others, to find these scattered sheep that need to hear of this Messiah. So it's not exactly what the people of Israel were expecting or what they were looking for. And at times, maybe it's not even what we expect. 
Maybe it's not what our neighbors are thinking. Maybe it's not what they're looking for. But the truth is, Jesus is on a search and rescue mission. And He sent us out as His agents, as His ambassadors. And so, as we recognize the King, as we recognize and welcome the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world and into our midst, the faithful response on the part of His saints, His rescued ones, is to carry that hope, to carry that message to those around us, and to, and to even challenge ourselves and others to, to see bigger and broader than the categories we tend to see them in, right? Don't try to squeeze them into some, uh, into some mold or some vision that you think a, a Savior should play, because what He came to do is bigger and better and deeper and more eternal than the things that we tend to, to chase after and the things we place our values on. So let's, as we go from here today, let's remember we are those who have been sent out by the seeking Savior to call those to Himself who have not heard. Let's pray together.